Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, Seven Heroes Buried Side by Side But Never Found. And I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on your YouTube or audio burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. Today's story is a mystery solved by research, and all of us here at the Foundation want to dedicate this episode to Eric Kilgore and all of our loyal listeners at the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for your support. Thank for you, you for your help in solving this mystery, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now, on with our episode. Today's episode is a special, a very special Memorial Day episode for you today that is captured from seven of our individual investigative case files of the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. We will show the link to seven Marines who lost their lives together in the waning hours of the Battle of Tarawa and were buried side by side where their graves were carefully marked on a military map with grid coordinates listed in each Marine's official records. But, and as you know from listening to our previous episodes, there is always a but in history's military mysteries. The government agency assigned to find our MIAs can't seem to read the map. How can this happen? Well, I'm not sure we'll have the answer to being, quote, acutely dysfunctional, end quote, but stay tuned, and we'll tell you the full story on today's No Home for Heroes. Our seven missing heroes today are listed in order, and they are a group of seven members of A and B companies of the 1st Battalion, 6 Marines. They're Elvis Arthur Dill, who was a private from Missouri, assigned to B Company. Private First Class Harris Kent Duff from Colorado, also assigned to B Company. Private Adelphus Joseph Messier from New York, assigned to A Company. Private Howard Elmer Miller from California, assigned to A Company. Private First Class Raymond Arthur Pickering from Missouri, also assigned to A Company. And the final two from B Company were Private Faye Jean Tedder from Illinois and Private First Class Stanley Winnemucca from Nevada. These seven Marines, as we said, were a part of the 521 missing in action from the Battle of Tarawa, which I investigated while a member of the Department of Defense in 2011 and 2012. <laughs> After leaving as the proverbial disgruntled former employee of the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, or JPAC, the families of six of these seven kids contacted the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation and requested our assistance in updating the individual case investigations. And we have worked on these cases from 2013 until this month. 
A and B Company, 1st Battalion, 6th Marines, were designated as the reserve force for the invasion of Tarawa. This battalion was transported from their training bases in New Zealand to Tarawa on board the transport ship USS Phelan. A and B Company began landing at about 6.45 p.m. on the second evening of the battle, 21st November, 1943, on Green Beach on Tarawa. Unlike most of the assault marines on the other beaches, this unit transferred to seven and eleven-man rubber rafts off the shore reef and drew only very light Japanese defensive fire as they paddled and waded to shore. Derisively, the marines referred to their small rubber rafts as the condom fleet. The only casualties sustained during the landing operation were when a supply-laden amphibious tractor struck a Japanese mine which will no doubt be the subject of a future No Home for Heroes episode. As night fell, A and B companies dug into defensive foxholes and awaited the arrival of the remainder of the battalion early the next morning. After a brief skirmish around dawn on 22 November 1943, during which A Company killed several Japanese soldiers and captured five Korean laborers defending the area around two large Japanese 8-inch Vickers guns, the battalion began preparations for a full-scale attack eastward along the entire length of Basio Island. B Company was designated to be in support with A Company, 1st Battalion, 6 Marines, escorted by tanks, taking the lead. Between the time shortly after noon until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, A and B Company and the other units in the attack steadily drove the Japanese defenders across the entire island to a narrow defensive perimeter on the eastern tip of Basio Island. At about 4 p.m., B Company replaced A Company in the vanguard of the attack, and by 6.30 p.m., the attack stalled and B Company's commander, Captain George Kruger, was evacuated with a gunshot wound to the head, which ultimately paralyzed him from the waist down. During the night of 22 and 23 November 1943, Hundreds of Japanese attacked the Marine lines, manned primarily by Company A and Company B of the 1st Battalion, 6th Marine. In a series of bonsai attacks by the Japanese, the fighting was some of the most fierce in the entire battle, with hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the dark, utilizing bayonets, swords, knives, grenades, and small arms fire. The Japanese hit the hardest at about 0400 hours in the morning, when an estimated 300 Japanese barreled into B Company's line and A Company's left front, while a smaller group ran diversions along the beach. This was clearly the main event. Marines were fighting back all along the front with the proverbial everything they had. They called in artillery fire from their own supportive artillery and from offshore ships. Screaming, yelling, shooting, grenade-throwing Japanese were battering themselves on the Marine line. Many positions of the Marines were in danger of being overrun. First Lieutenant Norman Thomas got a quick radio message through to his commanding officer, Major Jones, at 04440, 4.40 in the morning, when he said, quote, We're killing them as fast as they come at us, but we can't hold much longer. We need reinforcements. Major Jones's reply was, We have no reinforcements. You've got to hold. Well, hold they did. 
a bit more than an hour after the shooting finally stopped, when it was just barely light enough to see, an actual body count would reveal more than 200 Japanese bodies had died. They were behind, on, and within even yards of the main line. Another 125 dead were counted more than 75 yards out, pummeled by Marine artillery and naval gunfire. The 1st Battalion, 6 Marines, had lost one officer and 44 men killed, and five officers and 123 men wounded. As the smoke began to clear from the all-night battle, our seven Marines in today's episode were found to have been killed by shrapnel and gunshot wounds. Each was identified and buried together near where they fell. But the question became exactly where? Because over the years, none of these seven have ever been found. They were simply listed as missing in action. But can they hardly be missing if they were known to have been killed in action? Their wounds actually listed and their families notified of their deaths? Nonetheless, over 75 years have now passed since their death in that ferocious nighttime battle and they are still listed as missing in action. Let's leapfrog in time to January 30th, 2015. After multiple, multiple joint POW-MIA accounting command scandals were exposed in the media by NBC, CBS, Fox News, National Public Radio, Associated Press, Stars and Stripes, and I'm sure I'm leaving out a host of other media outlets. The Department of Defense finally announced that JPAC was being dissolved. The end of JPAC took a total of 569 days from the very first media report titled MIA Work Called Acutely Dysfunctional. This was reported in the media on July 7, 2013, about the time we received the first family report request from one of our missing seven kids. The death of JPAC was the result of the American public's and the family's outrage who channeled their anger, frustration, humiliation, and feelings of betrayal to demand the immediate removal of those responsible for what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey, in testimony before Congress, called JPAC disgraceful when he described the situation at that organization. By that time, our foundation was finding clues to research materials that were not available at JPAC, which indicated the possibility that a map might exist that would locate the lost seven Marines. But where was it? One of the maddening and frustrating aspects of working at JPAC was the lack of access to government files. It hardly seems possible that one government agency can't get files from another government agency. but. That was sure a part of the acutely dysfunctional description of the unit. For example, the largest and most expensive and comprehensive of all military files is known as the Official Military Personnel File, or OMPF. As JPAC investigators for all of the wars from the Revolution to Iraq, we were allowed to request only five of these files from the National Personnel Records Center. Yep, that's right, five files per month to investigate over 80,000 MIA cases. Well, 
I think General Dempsey probably said it best. The situation was disgraceful. Well, our foundation researchers traveled to St. Louis, where the National Personnel Record Center is located, and with the excellent professional assistance of the MPRC staff, we soon had the OMPFs on all 521 MIAs from the Battle of Tarawa. I guess our foundation crew was just not willing to wait the nine years it would have taken JPAC to get even those files if they were the priority and the other wars and battles were not fighting for their five per month limit. When our investigators began analyzing and correlating the data from all of the OMPFs from Tarawa, we found a surprising revelation. Map coordinates listing the burials of the seven Marines in today's episode. You guessed it, the coordinates were all the same for these seven. But coordinates without a map are worthless. Thanks to one of our associates, Captain William Niven, United States Marine Corps retired, we soon had the map that correlated to the coordinates. As he plotted the coordinates on the map, he was able to find the exact area where Privates Dill, Duff, Messier, Pickering, Pickering, Tedder, Winnemucca, and Miller were buried on the morning of November 23, 1943, and where, sadly, they are still buried to this very day. This burial location and all of the information concerning these seven cases has been repeatedly offered by our foundation to the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, and no response has ever been received. Maybe no one there can read a map. Maybe Captain Niven can read the map for them. And maybe someday someone in authority will finally avail themselves of the information we have for them to solve today's history's military mystery. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to listen free on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you would like to listen to your podcast. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. Our next episode is titled, Finding a Lost Tuskegee Airman. Learn how a member of the famed group of black fighter pilots known as the Tuskegee Airmen went missing on an escort mission to Germany in 1944 and was never heard from again. But, and there's always a but in history's military mysteries, you sure don't want to miss this one because we think his crash site may have been found but the remains of the pilot could not be identified after the war. Is it possible that modern DNA science can provide the key to solving the 75-year-old mystery? Well, maybe, 
But there are problems even modern science will need to overcome in this case. We will tell you the full story next week on No Home for Heroes. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that, having heroes, forgets them.